Hello, and welcome to The Intersection. I'm Mark Riley. Thanks for listening to this episode of my podcast. Much to uncrate this week. A senior journalist from Al Jazeera is shot and killed on the West Bank. Her funeral was disrupted, attacked by Israeli police. The January 6th committee subpoenas five Republican colleagues. Another abortion failed by the Democrats in Congress. Finland and Sweden are both moving closer to NATO, much to the chagrin of guess who? And did the meatpacking industry and the Trump administration lie about shortages at the beginning of the pandemic, exposing workers to health risks? Before we get to the killing of Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akleh, we must mourn the 10 latest victims of racist gun violence in Buffalo, New York. Authorities are calling it a hate crime, pure and simple. An 18-year-old white kid who was apparently entranced by so-called replacement theory has been arrested and charged. He's pleaded not guilty. 11 of the 13 people who were shot were black people at a supermarket. Sound familiar? It was just seven years ago that nine black parishioners were murdered in Charleston, South Carolina. An anti-Semitic attack, massacre in a Pittsburgh synagogue took the lives of 11 people. An attack at a Walmart in El Paso, Texas cost 20 people their lives and the man charged expressed hatred toward Latinos. Some argue that it's hatred, not guns, that caused these massacres. I would beg to differ. Hatred is obviously the catalyst. Yet you have to ask, would 50 people have died if these deranged individuals had not had guns? And that's not all. The media people who have espoused replacement theory and other whack nonsense also need to be taken to task for that nonsense. But of course, they will duck and dodge, absolving themselves of any responsibility. Most are very, very well paid. That money now becomes blood money. Now to the killing of Al Jazeera senior reporter Shireen Abu Akleh. She was covering an Israeli raid in occupied West Bank. The UN Security Council has condemned her killing. Equally as troubling was the conduct of Israeli police in attacking her funeral procession. At first, the Israeli government alleged the killing of Abu Akleh could have been done by armed Palestinians, but later walked that assertion back. Thus far, the U.S., the EU, and others have expressed varying levels of concern about the killing and its aftermath. Palestinians are understandably outraged and say they don't trust any investigation the Israeli government might initiate. There are some things that ought to be blatantly obvious from this journalist's killing. First, what was the purpose of the raid? Initial reports said there was shooting on both sides. Yet some witnesses said there was no Palestinian shooting at all. There obviously needs to be an independent, thorough investigation that sheds light on who was culpable and justice must be meted out without fear or favor. This much we do know. Shireen Abu Akleh was a revered journalist who died doing her job. She'd done this work with distinction for more than two decades. Was she targeted by Israeli authorities? There are reports that the military and police have targeted journalists doing their jobs in the past. It's also worth noting that Abu Akhla's producer was also shot and wounded. He fortunately did not die in that same incident. Al Jazeera has called her killing murder. That the leadership of Israel has had to speak out about her killing is a measure of its gravity. 
Here is the final and central question. Will politics get in the way of an honest, scrupulous, and just probe of Shireen Abu Akhla's death? Let's hope not. Closer to home, Democrats swung and missed on passing a bill that would guarantee abortion access no matter what the Supreme Court decides about Roe v. Wade. We talked about how many times the Democrats in Congress have failed to get significant legislation passed in the current session. It's the same old song. 51 senators, including one Democrat, opposed the bill, while 49 supported it. They needed 60 to pass it anyway, and they weren't even close. Think about this for a minute. A, major a majority of the United States Senate opposed a woman's right to choose what to do with her own body. It's no longer just a simple, are you for or against abortion? These people are bound and determined to keep their boots firmly planted on the necks of the female population. That the majority of the Senate is male, of course, is a given. That they were totally detached from the reality of women's lives is now stunningly obvious. Consider this for a moment. Women don't bounce in and out of abortion clinics with smiles anywhere in America. For many, if not most, it's the most wrenching decision they will make in their lives. In too many cases, they told their partners they were pregnant, expecting to see joy on their faces, only to experience the betrayal of being left on their own. I know, I've talked to women outside clinics where anti-abortionists yell at them through microphones. Some try to convince them to change their minds, while others try coercion. Think about this, 40%, that's right, 4-0, 40% of 50-year-old girls who get pregnant got that way by way of men ages 20 to 29. You can make a serious case for the fact that the responsibility for getting young girls pregnant is significantly on men. That's men, not other kids. Given that number and the fact that men all too often dodge their responsibility of paying child support, and you have a recipe for disaster if you're a woman. Another thing you ought to contemplate here, contraception for women is most often dispensed by prescription. Male contraception, on the other hand, can be found in just about any men's room at any highway rest stop. Yet lots of men refuse to use this most basic birth control, the condom. Which, of course, brings up another question. Why is contraception so often seen as a woman's job? All this taken together with a gutless political system should demand a paradigm shift in American attitudes toward women. We claim to see them as equals, but their daily lives too often tell a different story. Isn't it time we listen? Coming up, the January 6th committee issues subpoenas, compelling five of their Republican colleagues to give testimony. That would be under oath. Will they punt? And Finland and Sweden are moving closer to NATO. Russia is retaliating. So now what? This is The Intersection. Wherever you are, stay tuned to The Intersection with Mark Riley. I'd like to know what you think. Leave a comment on my Facebook page or you can email me at mark at markreillymedia.com. Welcome back 
to the intersection. The House committee probing the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol seems to have come to the end of their tether. After asking numbers of Republican lawmakers to voluntarily appear and give testimony, they're now trying a different tack. Rebuffed on the voluntary front, they've issued subpoenas to House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy and four of his colleagues. This is a really big deal. The committee wants to know what these five know about former President Donald Trump's intentions before, during, and after the attack. All five have, to one degree or another, denounced the committee as partisan. It's not known yet if they'll ignore the subpoenas, which would escalate this confrontation beyond where it already is. The leadership of the committee, headed by Mississippi Democrat Benny Thompson, has been hesitant to issue subpoenas, and rightly so. If Republicans capture the House in the midterms, which everybody thinks they're going to, 2023 could see an avalanche of investigations of House Democrats led by McCarthy, who would then become Speaker of the House. That means the committee, which McCarthy and his minions boycotted in the first place, has a limited time to finish its work. There are a series of public hearings starting June 9th that should clarify for the public what the committee has been doing and some of its conclusions. We do know this. Some members of Congress tried to tell Trump to tell that insurrectionist mob to stop what it was doing. Because they're such toadies to the former president, they don't want to own what they said and did, especially those who indulged the former guy that the election was stolen from him. My guess is the others will have been subpoenaed, actually the others who have been subpoenaed, will follow McCarthy's lead and he will refuse to appear. Then what, you may ask? Well, some who have refused to testify have been cited for contempt of Congress, not lawmakers necessarily, but others who have been subpoenaed and ignored them. Why should these five be treated any differently? In my opinion, the conduct of not just these lawmakers, but many Republicans who bought into Trump's myth of a stolen election deserve some form of sanction. That sanction would have to take place at the ballot box this coming November. Sad to say, for a number of reasons, many will be returned to office. Our focus now shifts to Europe, where, as the Russian invasion of Ukraine drags on, it looks like both Finland and Sweden will join NATO, a strategic body blow to Vladimir Putin. Yes, they've threatened retaliation against both countries, but Moscow's stumbles in Ukraine have shredded their image as an all-powerful military force. Besides, Putin had to move troops away from Finland to move against Ukraine. Think about that for a minute. The threats of retaliation come down to empty saber-rattling as a result. Because, you know, the, Putin always talks about nuclear this and nuclear that. He's, And, of course... In any discussion about Russia, there's always the backdrop of the possibility of some nuclear retaliation. I wouldn't bet the store on that at this point. Now, Russian's state-owned RAO Nordic has altered electricity exports to Finland. At present, Russian electricity accounts for only 10% of Finnish consumption. What Putin fears most about Finnish membership, membership that is in NATO, is that it doubles the size of Russia's land border with NATO, and it also encircles its three ports on the Baltic Sea. If that happens, Putin's plan of holding 
the alliance at bay by invading Ukraine will have gone horribly wrong and at a cost of many lives, both Ukrainian and Russian. Late reports say the Russians are even dialing down their threats against both countries. The addition of two more countries to NATO also gives the organization some much-needed clout at a time when some Republican lawmakers in the U.S. are taking the Trumpist line toward both the alliance and even Ukraine. It has to be said, NATO didn't provide the strongest, most unified response at the beginning of the Russian invasion back in February. Putin had counted on that, and now it's also backfired on him. Good. And finally, did meat packers mislead the public about shortages during COVID and consumer prices continue to rise with potentially devastating political consequences? Now, I told you all about this before, but now it's getting worse. This is The Intersection. Welcome back to The Intersection. Thanks for staying with us. You may remember the meatpacking industry furiously lobbied the Trump administration during the early days of the COVID pandemic. They wanted processing plants to remain open despite the risk to their own workers. Well, a recent House Select Committee report says the meat industry did just that. They stoked fears of a meat shortage to keep plants open. What's worse, the report says the legal department of Tyson Foods actually drafted an initial version of an executive order that Donald Trump issued in 2020. The order declared processing plants as critical infrastructure. Now, think about that for a minute. A private company wrote the initial draft of an executive order issued by the President of the United States. And of course, that draft favored that same meat processing company. It's incredible. Incredible. Now, all that led the government adjusted to adjusting its recommendations on worker safety at meatpacking plants. What was the human cost of this industry greed? 59,000 workers contracted coronavirus from March 1st, 2020 to February 1st, 2021. 263 workers died during that same period. Of course, the industry pushed back and pushed back hard against the committee's findings. Yet the facts are pretty clear. Plant closures in 20, April 2020 led executives at Smithfield and Tyson Foods to issue public warnings that the nation risked running out of meat. That same month, a record amount of pork was exported to China. The meat industry also enlisted figures in the Trump administration to urge workers not to stay home and softened federal guidelines to address outbreaks at plants. Among those who urged workers to go back to work was none other than then Vice President Mike Pence. This is all utterly outrageous. And the question of who you believe between a committee headed by Congressman Jim Clyburn and a bunch of people whose end game was money is less than a no-brainer. Sadly, there's not a lot that can be done about it now. Very little 
except to store it in your memory bank for the next time there's a pandemic. That and stop eating meat. Our final item is about the cost of living. First, the good news. April showed a slight slowdown in annual price increases. The bad news, the consumer price index rose 8.3%, a number that still causes the hearts of politicians to shudder. Republicans have done a good job, as I've said before, in pinning rising prices on President Joe Biden. His problem, it seems, is that he hasn't been able to deliver a cogent message about how he's going to get those price increases to moderate. Neither, by the way, have Democrats in Congress. And with each passing month, consumers are feeling the pinch. Leaving aside the cost of energy and gas at the pump, both of which are critically important, Americans are seeing prices at the supermarket rise, while many products people have been used to buying are no longer on store shelves. That is a bad, bad combination. I could go on and on about this, but the long and the short of it is this. When some Republicans think voting against an aid package for Ukraine while whining about a shortage of baby formula, you know there is a problem. And, and that, folks, is not something I made up in my head. That actually happened. And the cost of living is something that people can chart and graph and talk about and debate. But there's no debate when people go to the store. There is no debate. If something that costs normally a dollar or a dollar fifty suddenly goes up to two fifty to three dollars, the consumer feels that pinch. Now, they do have choices. They can go for a bargain or a store brand of that particular product if it's available, or they can forego buying that particular uh, piece of meat or whatever and just move on to something else. And consumers will remember these shortages. That's the problem. Consumers are going to remember these shortages when they go to the polls for the midterm elections. That makes it incumbent upon Democrats. God, how many times do I have to say this? Come up with a message that people will believe in. Something. I, I would say something, anything, but that's too tempting, I think, for a lot of Democrats. Uh, you have to come up with a message. And the message is not, you know, times are tough. Please send me some money, which I get. I, I get must at least between a half dozen and ten pitches for money on the part of Democrats. And look, I'm a Democrat. I, I believe in the fundamental principles of the Democratic Party. I just don't think they've done a great job on an awful lot of levels. And the cost of living is one of them. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Intersection. The executive producer of the broadcast is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay well.